Matthew chapter 22. Everybody there? All right, Matthew chapter 22. Today we'll be looking, uh, starting in verse 15, uh, working our way toward the end of the chapter. Okay, so we've been looking at uh, this Passover week. Some call it Passion Week. And during Passover week, Jesus, <clears throat> excuse me, Jesus' enemies tried to trap him. They were uh, using a series of loaded questions as they were coming to him. Remember, Jesus wasn't there just by himself. There were, there were other people in Jerusalem hearing this, these conversations going on. So uh, they don't like Jesus, and so they're trying to trap him. They want to get him in trouble. They want to get rid of him. And so these men were still smarting from the treatment they just received in the series of parables he had just given here in Matthew uh, uh, 22 and 21. He had exposed their evil intentions. Of course, he knew their hearts. And he was warning them that they were only asking for judgment. The religious leaders did not enjoy, of course, being humiliated before the crowds. They loved their, their high positions of authority. They were wholeheartedly bent on destroying Jesus, though. Uh, they made that quite clear. They wanted to get rid of him. He was a threat. And so they hoped uh, to trap him in, in saying something that they could use that would actually permit them to have Jesus arrested and, and hopefully executed. But there was another reason for the questions. A lot of times we, we kind of skip over this and don't even think about it. But it's one, one of his... Uh, and if, by the way, it was one that his enemies didn't even realize, but it's interesting that when you look at Exodus chapter 12, don't turn there, but in Exodus 12, Jesus, you need to understand, was the Passover lamb. At the very time in Jerusalem when, when tens and tens of thousands of lambs were being slaughtered, the lamb of God, Jesus Christ, was also being slaughtered. And so Jesus was going to die as the lamb of God. And it was necessary for all lambs, remember all lambs had to be examined, had to be blameless, spotless. So this was Jesus' time coming up. This is just a couple days before his crucifixion here. Just a little bit before his crucifixion. And so he's, he's being examined before Passover, before he, the Lamb of God, was slaughtered. So if any blemish whatsoever was found in the Lamb... Of course, that lamb could not be sacrificed. It would not have been considered a suitable sacrifice. And so Jesus was examined publicly here by his enemies. And of course, they could find no fault in him, which is why in the end, they actually went away. They went away. Jesus, it's like, like all these enemies kept coming at him and he just kept shooting them down. Well, of course, this, this personal interchange here between Jesus and the religious leaders was also an opportunity for them to believe and be saved. Again, we see a, a long-suffering, gracious, merciful God giving these hypocrites yet another chance to repent and to believe in Jesus. And so even at the last minute, there, there's hope for the lost sinner. But the lost sinner has to receive the truth. A, a lost sinner has to repent. Uh, there has to be a change of mind in regard to our sin and and, of course, they have to believe in Jesus alone. Apparently, most of them, maybe all of them, did not do that. We're going to look at a series of four questions involved in this public discussion. And three of the questions are coming from uh, other people and, and directed at Jesus. And, and the last one is actually Jesus. Jesus then throws out a a question when the last one we'll look at. So let's look at these four occasions that come here in Matthew chapter 22. In the first one, we see starting in verse 15, we see that the king validates civil and spiritual government. The king validates civil and spiritual government. Look at Matthew 22, verse 15. Verse 15. Then the Pharisees went and plotted how to entangle him in his words. And they sent their disciples to him, along with the Herodians, saying, Teacher, we know that you are true and teach the way of God truthfully, and 
Do not care about anyone's opinion, for you are not swayed by appearances. Tell us then what you think. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? But Jesus, aware of their malice, said, Why put me to the test, you hypocrites? Show me the coin for the tax. And they brought him a denarius. Jesus said to them, Whose likeness and inscription is this? They said, Caesar's. Then he said to them, Therefore, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. And when they heard it, they marveled, and they left him and went away. That's the first occasion where these religious leaders are trying to trap Jesus. In this case, it's interesting because, did you notice the Bible specifically mentions in verse 15, as well as in verse 16, that it's the Pharisees, and notice the second group in verse 16. It's the Herodians. Herodians, you should see the word Herod in the word Herodians. These Pharisees and Herodians, it's interesting because they're ganging up on Jesus. Normally they wouldn't be together because normally they hate each other. But in this case, they have a common foe, and as far as they're concerned, Jesus is the greater danger than each other. And so they gang up on Jesus. The Pharisees opposed the Roman poll tax for several reasons, of course. Uh, just like nobody, I, I, can't, I can't think of anybody who really enjoys paying taxes. It's not a nice thing to do. And, and, and of course, uh, Rome was the power at this time. Caesar had his image imprinted on these denariuses, which, remember, a denarius was a day's wage for uh, most workers of that day. And so that was the tax that they needed to pay. It wasn't unreasonable, just a day's wage, unlike us, where we have to work about uh, nearly half of the year before we actually start making money for ourselves. So they had it fairly easy back then. And so these, these Pharisees, uh, of course, opposed this Roman poll tax for several reasons. Let me give you a few of them. Number one, they, didn't want to, they did not want to submit to a Gentile power. They didn't like Gentiles. Number two, Caesar was revered as a god. And, of course, to an Orthodox Jew, there was only one god, and Caesar was not that one god. And number three, they had better uses for the money. Just like, you know, we, we like to think we have better uses of the money than our government's going to spend it. Well, they thought the same way. And so since the Herodians were the party who actually supported King Herod, they were in favor of the tax. <laughs> so you have two people who opposite views of the tax joining up against Jesus and asking a question about taxes. I mean, just think about this for a moment. Herod's authority was given to him by Caesar. And Herod would have had a difficult time staying in power if it wasn't for Caesar and his Roman armies. So, of course, Herod is going to uh, do everything he can uh, to, to stay in power. He liked his power, his, the fame and, and the wealth and all that went, that went with that. So he was on the side of Caesar. The Herodians were on the side of Caesar. They're all for the tax. So Pharisees are against the tax, Herodians are for the tax, and they're, they're, they're coming together against Jesus. So we see Jesus' enemies are trying to trap him in, here in verses 15 through 17. They ask this very important question. Did you notice the question? Is it right to pay taxes to Rome? Is it right to pay taxes to Rome? By the way, if you're wondering, is it right to pay taxes to Wellington, New Zealand, just take note of Jesus' words here. Well, it's easy to see why the Pharisees and the Herodians chose the poll tax as the bait to put on the hook to, to try to trap Jesus. It's kind of obvious, I hope, to you that no matter which side Jesus took here, he's going to get himself in trouble. And that's exactly why they chose this question. Is it right to pay taxes to Caesar? Well, just think about that. 
if he opposes the tax, who is he going to make angry? If he opposes the tax, he's going to make Caesar and the Herodians and King Herod angry. But if Jesus says, sure, pay the taxes, well, then then he's going to make the Pharisees and the Jews angry. And all the, all the Jews who would have been there in Jerusalem hearing this, he would have made them angry. So it appeared no matter what side Jesus took, he's going to create a problem for himself. So how is Jesus going to respond to this? Well, if you look at verse 18, he rebukes the leaders. Verse 18, notice he actually calls them hypocrites. He calls them hypocrites. So Jesus immediately saw their scheme. He saw their their conniving. He saw their evil minds and evil hearts. He knew their real purpose was not actually to to get an answer to this question. They didn't really want the answer. They were trying to trap him. They're only acting apart. And that's, by the way, that's originally what a hypocrite was. Originally, a hypocrite was one of those people who would, who would have those white masks and they would, they would, they would play. You'd usually be one person up on stage and they would, they could change their character by grabbing a different mask, right? One might have a smiley face, one a frown face, one a surprise face. And so whatever part they were playing, they could keep grabbing these masks and do a different part they're doing something that wasn't really them. Originally, that's what a hypocrite was. That's what Jesus is calling them here. And so on this basis alone, he could have refused to answer them. Didn't have to answer. You you know this. Even at his trial, Jesus didn't always answer. But he knew the people around him would not understand if he was quiet and didn't answer. So here was an opportunity for him, number one, to silence his enemies. And at the same time, I'm sure Jesus wanted to teach all the people that were there. He wanted to teach them important spiritual truths. And so in the process, Jesus does that, and he defeats his opponents. And notice what Jesus says. He says, give to Caesar what is his, and to God what is God's. It's a brilliant answer, isn't it? (laughs) Typical Jesus answer. Of course, it's always right, always brilliant. Give to Caesar what is his, and to God what is God's. Well, there's a number of ways we could apply this passage. Let me just give you a few. Number one, Christians must honor and obey rulers. And by the way, Christians must honor and obey rulers even when they're not worthy of honor. Okay? You don't honor somebody just because they're worthy of it. If, if, I mean, if that was the case... I would never honor any of our MPs. Frankly, they're not worthy of it. But that's not the point. And by the way, this isn't the only place that Jesus, or or the Bible, sorry, the Bible teaches us to honor and obey earthly rulers. You can see it in Romans chapter 13, 1 Peter chapter 2. Don't look at that now, but those are just a few examples. So you need to understand something. Christians have a dual citizenship. Don't just think of yourself as a citizen of heaven, which is certainly true and is a blessing, but you're also a citizen here on earth of a particular country. Paul in Philippians 3 talked about this idea of a dual citizenship. You're a citizen of heaven and you're a citizen of earth. And so we, we must respect our earthly rulers because... Jesus tells us you are a citizen of earth. You give to Caesar what is his. You honor the rulers. You obey and submit, as Romans 13 says. And so that includes obeying the law, unless the law, of course, tells you to disobey God. Right? God trumps everything. So so as long as government and, and city council and so forth don't try to trump God, then, then we, we must obey the law, which even includes paying taxes. As uncomfortable and as painful as that is for me and you, God, in Jesus in particular here, is telling us to pay to our governing rulers what belongs to them. By the way, the Bible also says you're to pray for all those who are in authority so that you might live a quiet life 
and peaceful life. It may not always be that way, but you are to pray for them, even though they don't deserve that prayer. Number two, Christians must honor and obey God. So Jesus says you, you give to Caesar what is his, but notice Jesus gives you the other side of the coin as well. You give to God what belongs to him. And by the way, that's everything. So what, what is Caesar's actually is God's, ultimately, isn't it? And so we as Christians, if you're a Christian, you have to honor and obey God. Caesar thought he was God, sometimes proclaimed himself to be God, and many people did treat him as a God, but Caesar was not God. And while governments cannot enforce religion, neither should they restrict freedom of worship. And when they start restricting freedom of worship, then they've stepped outside their bounds, the authority that God has given to them. And so the best citizen is going to honor his country because of the ultimate motive is that you worship God. Number three, a third way we can apply this is because man bears God's image, he owes God his all. You owe God your all. It's interesting, Jesus was given that, that coin, he holds the coin up, that denarius, that, that day's wage, which had Caesar's image on it. But God's image is on man. According to Genesis chapter 1, you know Genesis 1 says that man was made in God's image. You're made in God's image. All the other creatures of the earth don't have God's image. That's, that's one of those, the main thing that makes you distinct and you, unique. But sadly, sin has marred that image, according to Genesis 3. And it's through Jesus Christ that that image can be restored. It's only through Christ that that image can be restored. Number four, it's right for Christians to serve in government. Some Christians think that that it's wrong. It's, It's a sin to serve in government, but that's not necessarily the case. It might be for some people, but... If God should so lead you to do so, use that time for His glory. There's, there's heaps of examples in the Bible of people who served in various governments. And they're far worse governments than our own. Some of the ones that first came to my mind were Daniel and Joseph. Of course, Daniel served under you know, guys like King Nebuchadnezzar, King Darius. You know, he was under the Babylonians as well as the Persians. Joseph served in Egypt under the pharaohs. So it's right for Christians to serve in government. They were able to uh, still glorify God even in the midst of those horrible situations they were in. Number five, it's wrong for government to control the church. Uh, Some talk about the separation of church and state. All right, okay. That's fine for government to stay out of the church, but... Sometimes it's been taken too far and say that the church should stay out of government. Maybe as as denominations they should stay out of the government, but we as individual Christians, I hope we would would do our part to, to elect, hopefully, godly people to government, to influence our our government and, and city council to please God with their choices and decisions. And by the way, it's wrong for government to control the church or for the church to control government. Jesus was distinguishing between these areas. You know, what, what belongs to God, you give to God. What belongs to the government, give to them. And number six, Christians should not be involved in armed insurrection. Okay, that's not appropriate for Christians. Jesus was never a supporter of revolutionaries, even the revolutionaries of his own day. Okay? So neither should we. Okay? So when, when we disagree with what a government is doing, it's not our job to pick up a machine gun and, and go attack the government or, or whatever you might want to use. Okay? Our job is to pray for them, to talk to them, do whatever we can through peaceful means. Now, you're not likely to do that, but certainly in the past, that was, that was an issue amongst Christians. Many Christians have taken up arms against governments. So in spite of the fact that the Pharisees and the Herodians 
had been beaten. The Sadducees now are kind of entering the field here. They want to get into the attack against Jesus. And uh, as we read, I want you to keep in mind here that this group, the, the Sadducees, you need to know something about them before we read this. Uh, they actually accepted only the authority of the first five books of your Bible. The books of Moses, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. That was the only ones they accepted as authoritative. And so the Sadducees, in the process, didn't believe in a spirit world, and they certainly didn't believe in the resurrection. In fact, uh, uh, they had a rather serious debate about that in the book of Acts, which you can read about that if, if you're curious. And so, so, so the Sadducees are entering the field of combat here against Jesus, and of course they've got to bring up the thing that they disagree with, which is the resurrection. And so the king validates the resurrection starting in verse 23. Have a look at verse 23 in your Bible. The same day, Sadducees came to him, who say there is no, uh, who say that there is no resurrection, and they asked him a question, saying, "Teacher, Moses said, if a man dies having no children, his brother must marry the widow and raise up offspring for his brother." Now there were seven brothers among us. The first married and died, and having no offspring, left his wife to his brother. So too the second and the third, down to the seventh. After them all, the woman died. In the resurrection, therefore, of the seven, whose wife will she be? For they all had her. (laughs) Look at Jesus' response here, verse 29. But Jesus answered them, You are wrong, because you know neither the Scriptures nor the power of God. For in the resurrection they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. And as for the resurrection of the dead, have you not read what was said to you by God? Here's what God said. I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He is not God of the dead, but of the living. And when the crowd heard it, they were astonished at his teaching. Again, you got to love Jesus' answer, don't you? He refuses to be trapped by these hypocrites. And so we see Jesus being confronted by these Sadducees who didn't believe in a spirit world. They didn't believe in the resurrection. So they asked this rather silly question. (laughs) I don't know if you've ever thought about this. Right? There's a woman who had seven husbands while she was here on earth. And so the Sadducees' hypothetical illustration, by the way, you need to understand, was based on the Jewish law of Leviret marriage, which came from Deuteronomy. The purpose of that custom was to preserve the man's name, the, the, the man's heritage, should he die without a male heir. And so in a nation like Israel... Uh, where family inheritance was was a huge thing, a major thing, it was important that each home have an heir. Uh, one of the worst things you could do to to a Jew was was to kill their heirs, and that's why uh, that's why when the heathens would attack Israel, they would they would take the king and and they would they would tie the king up and they would kill his sons before him and then poke his eyeballs out. So the last thing he saw was his male heirs distinguished or extinguished. So this was a huge thing for a Jew. It was considered a disgrace for a, a man, by the way, in this time. It, w- it was considered a disgrace for a man to refuse to raise up a family for his dead brother. Now, you might find that rather strange because we don't, we don't practice that today, do we? Uh, in fact, it would be rather strange if we did do that today. But, but at this this time, because Deuteronomy chapter 25 talks about that, that was the thing that they were supposed to do. And that's why when you read the book of Ruth, if you don't understand Leviric marriage, then you're not going to understand what's going on in the book of Ruth. Right? So, so that's why she, you know, Ruth's going around trying to find uh, someone who would uh, father the children to carry on that, the family heritage. 
And so Jesus is confronted by these Sadducees. They ask the silly question, and Jesus just points out their serious errors. They had rather serious errors. If you look here in Matthew 22, verse 23, um, so they're asking this question about the resurrection. And then in verse 29, Jesus says, he answers them, you are wrong, and he gives two points. Verse 29, he says, you're wrong because you know neither the Scriptures, and you're also wrong, number two, because you don't know the power of God. So they're wrong on both accounts. They don't believe in the resurrection, and they don't understand the power of God. Uh, Verse 23 makes it quite clear they don't believe in the resurrection. And if you read the book of Acts, it's also clear they don't believe in the resurrection. So they don't understand the resurrection nor the power of God. And so Jesus, again, takes the opportunity to teach the truth. And he he has some interesting truths here you need to, to take note of. Number one, he says there's going to be no marriage in the resurrection. So those of you who are married now, or have been married in the past... Uh, I don't know what you're going to think about this, but Jesus says in the future, in the afterlife, in, in heaven, there is no marriage. Why is that? Because Jesus says people will be like the angels in heaven. Well, what are the angels like? You have to know what they're like to understand what that means for you when you get to heaven. Or, Well, it's going to be that way in hell, too. There's not going to be any marriage there either. But Jesus didn't say that we would be uh, we would be angels when we're glorified in heaven. That, notice he didn't say that. He's not he's not saying you're going to have you know uh, you know I don't know whatever an angel is. But what he did say is we would be as the angels. Well, in what way? As the angels in what way? Well, we're we're not going to be married. We're not going to be given in marriage. Apparently, we're not even going to have a desire for marriage. Because, remember, your marriage here on earth only points to a greater marriage. The marriage of the groom with his bride, which is the church. So your marriage, is earthly marriage, is supposed to point to the spiritual marriage. So your earthly marriage is only temporary. That marriage, the spiritual one, is permanent. And so... The foolish stories we hear about people trying or, 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 or dying and becoming angels are not true. They're actually unbiblical. All right? You don't die and become an angel. You don't, you know, there's all kinds of silly ones. Uh, the one that always cracks me up is, you know, people dying and, you know, you see these fat little babies with little wings sitting on a cloud playing a harp. And there's silly stories like that. Those, of course, are not biblical. Right? Apparently, apparently you're going to be recognizable. You're going to be a grown-up. You're not going to be a little teeny baby either. You'll be a grown-up in heaven, and you will be recognizable. But the second truth Jesus is teaching here is there's going to be a resurrection. Clearly, Jesus believes in a resurrection in verses 31 through 33. Notice Jesus says that God is not the God of the dead, but of the living. Do you see that? Jesus knew that Moses was the only authority they would actually accept. He knew they only believed in those first five books. And so what does he do? Jesus is is amazing, as he always is. He reminds them of Exodus chapter 3, where in Exodus 3, Moses, uh, God says to Moses there, and that's the, the story of the burning bush, in case you want to know the context, but anyway, God says through that the, the fire that wasn't consuming the burning bush, He says, I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. Interesting choice of words, is it not? Because God says, I am the God of the patriarchs. Notice He doesn't say, I was the God of Abraham. <laughs> If he had said, I was the God of Abraham, well, that that would mean that Abraham was no more. Abraham was no longer existing. And so by saying, I am, Jesus made it quite clear here that these three men were still alive. They were still in existence. Even several thousand years later, they were still in existence. And so Jesus is backing up what Exodus says. 
And by the way, he says, notice Jesus says, the God of. He repeats that phrase from Exodus 3. He is the God of. And so Jesus, by saying that, is saying that he knew them. He loved them personally, intimately, individually. So they weren't just uh, some, you know, they weren't just joining up with some cosmic dust or, you know, nothingness. (laughs) Right? They still had their individualities. They were still Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and Jesus is the God of them. Do you see that? So Jesus is, is a firm believer in the resurrection. He is a firm believer in not only his own resurrection, but in a believer's resurrection, because Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob were believers. They, they went to heaven, and so, so God knew them personally. He loved them. They were still living, still individuals, and God was their God. There's a relationship. And again, did you notice in verse 33, the crowd heard it. They were astonished at his teaching. Well, the trap's not over. If you look in the next few verses, we see that the Pharisees heard, in verse 34, when the Pharisees heard that they had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together. And in this case, there was a lawyer that comes to Jesus, and we see here that Jesus, in this in this passage, he's actually elevating love for God and for people. And notice this lawyer in verse 34, who is, who is one of them. He comes. <clears throat> he asks Jesus this question, and notice he's doing it to test Jesus. Look at verse 35. He does it to test Jesus. And he asks this question in verse 36. Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? And he said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. So the question is there in verses 34 through 36. What is this great commandment? What's the greatest commandment out of all of the laws that were given? By the way, that was not a new question. That was something that had been debated by the scribes. and They, they had been debating it for centuries. In fact, they had documented uh, at least 613 commandments in the law. Think about that. 613 commandments. No person could ever hope to know all of those. No person could fully obey all those commandments. And so, to make it easier on themselves, the experts actually, what they did is, they divided the commandments into what they called the heavy commandments and the light commandments. Or in other words, they divided the commandments up into the so-called important commandments and the unimportant commandments or lesser important commandments. And so apparently they did this so a person could major on the important commandments because they they understood it was impossible to keep all 613. They didn't want to worry about the trivial ones because it's hard enough just to keep the important ones. But there is a fallacy behind this approach. I don't know if you realize this, but in James chapter 2, the fallacy is this, that The Bible says you only need to break the law in one point, and when you do, you're guilty of the entire thing, all 613. It doesn't matter whether they're heavy or light. You become guilty before God by breaking one commandment. That's what James 2 verse 10 says. For whosoever shall keep the whole law and yet offend in one point, he is guilty of all. The law crushes you. Because nobody can keep it except Jesus. The good news is, though, Jesus kept the law for you. And so if you put your trust in Him, you don't have to keep the law. Because He's already done it for you. But if you want to try doing it on your own, go ahead, get crushed, and when you die, you spend eternity in hell. That's what happens. So notice Jesus' response here. 
verse 37, he, he gives them the greatest commandment. He actually answers the question that the scribes have been debating for centuries. <laughs> he says that the first is love God with all. That's to sum it up, he says, love God with all. The second is love your neighbor as yourself. And so in this passage here, Jesus is actually quoting from Deuteronomy chapter 6, which the Hebrews called the Shema. It was the Shema, Deuteronomy 6. You love God and you love people. This was a statement, by the way, it was a statement of faith that was recited daily by every Orthodox Jew. They would do it daily. And it's interesting, the word Shema comes from the Hebrew word, which means to hear. To hear. So they, they called it the Hebrew word Shema because in Deuteronomy 6, it actually starts with, Hear, O Israel. So that's where they get the word Shema from. So this was a confession of faith. And this confession of faith began with, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord. And therefore, you're to love God. You're to love people. So which is the greatest commandment? What is the greatest commandment? The greatest commandment, Jesus says, is to love God. And we're to love God with all that we are, all that we have. And by the way, notice Jesus says here, you're to love God not just with your heart. Jesus also says you're to love God with your soul. You're to love God with your mind. You're to love God with your strength. You're to love God with your possessions. You're to love God with your family. You're to love God with your body. You're to love God with all. So to love God, of course, don't just think of it as an emotion. Don't just think of it as a feeling. A lot of times we kind of limit it to that. All right? Love for God is not just some good feeling, warm, fuzzy feeling about God. That's not what Jesus is talking about here. This is the word agape. It's an agape kind of love. That, that love that God has, that, that God has for each other and God has for us. So true love involves the will as well as your heart. It involves emotions as well as your mind. It's your body. It's your everything. So where there is love, you know what that means? Where there's love, there's also going to be service for God. There's going to be obedience for God. And that's why Jesus says, if you love me, what are you going to do? You're going to keep my commandments. Because that's what love does. And you say, well, why, why is this important? What, what is the importance of these commandments? Well, Jesus says in verse 40, he, he tells you. Look at verse 40. He basically says here that, that all the other commandments, all 613 of them, and, and, and the, the, those things are based on two commandments. All the other commandments, the demands that the prophets have given, are based on those two commandments. And if you look at the Ten Commandments, the first four tell you how to love God, and the last six tell you how to love people. Right? So you love people by not lying to them. You love people by not murdering them. You love people by not stealing from them. You love other people by not having immoral relationships with their spouse so forth, right? Don't covet their stuff, right? That's how you love other people. That's, those are some examples. And so all the Ten Commandments are summed up in those two. Let's just think of some application here for a moment. Let's say you have left your first love. What do you do? Well, you do what Jesus talks about to the church in Revelation chapter 2. The answer is three things. You repent. You repeat, sorry, you repent, you return, and you repeat. So if you have left your first love, and by the way, that would say purposeful abandonment. It's not an accident. You abandon your love. Jesus says here, you repent of your sin, you return to him, and you repeat what you should be doing. Second, we must love God with every part of our being. That's what Jesus is saying. Not just your heart, all of your being. So to fulfill this command is going to involve several things. It involves, number one, you have to know God. You have to know God. You can't love something you don't know. 
It involves obeying all of His commands, not just the ones you like or you find convenient. Love means you obey all of them. It means committing totally to Him. It means you're totally committed to Him, even if it means your body is killed in the process. Remember what Paul says in Philippians 3? For me to live is Christ, and to die is gain. So it's a total commitment to Him. And so you see, love is much more than a feeling here. It's not just your heart, it's also your mind. It's your whole soul. It's, it's, it's the you. So it's based on a relationship, of course. Right? It's not just a, a warm, fuzzy feeling about you know, someone who isn't even a person. God's a person. This is a relationship. So it's based on relationship. And so this relationship involves absolute surrender and it involves selfless giving. That's agape love. So my friend, and our love for God, strive to always be growing. Strive to always be growing in this area. Don't, don't ever get to a, pl- a place where you're content. You don't want to plateau. Because when you plateau, you're actually backsliding. May our love for God keep growing. And number four, if you don't love God, then what do you do? Well, if you don't love God, the Bible says you're not even a Christian. You don't have this relationship if you don't love Him. So my encouragement to you is to get to know God so you can love Him. He loved you first so you can love Him. And so what you need to understand that God is great. God is good. Let me encourage you to read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. If you don't know Him and don't love Him, you need to know Jesus. You need to understand His love for you. Number five, love for God must be acted out in our love for others. It's acted out in our love for others. John, The Apostle John put it this way in 1 John, if you don't love other people, you don't love God. You're a liar. You've denied the truth. God's love is not in you. So my friend, we can't go around pretending to love God if we're harboring prejudice against another person. You can't pretend to love God if you have bitterness toward a spouse or a family member or a neighbor. You can't pretend to love God if you have some resentment in your heart toward another person. You don't love God because your love for God is acted out toward other people. Well, there's a last occasion here that comes up in this passage we need to talk about. And in this case, it's not some other group or person coming to Jesus asking the question. Jesus is asking the question here, and his, he is defending his identity as Messiah. He is the Messiah King. Look what Jesus says, starting in verse 41. Now, while the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them a question, saying, What do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? He said to him, The son of David. He said to them, How is it then that David in the Spirit calls him Lord, saying, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. If then David calls him Lord, how is he his son? No one was able to answer him a word, nor from that day did anyone dare to ask him any more questions. Well, they knew they had been defeated, didn't they? All right, Q&A time is done. We've been showed up. We've been made to look really bad. (laughs) So let's not try that approach anymore. And as we see in the rest of the book of Matthew, they tried other tactics to kill Jesus. Well, these men, they've been arguing with Jesus. Of course, they're not sympathetic to Jesus' cause. They're not sympathetic to Jesus. And they're not honest in their assessment of Jesus. They don't understand Jesus' credentials. They don't understand He's the Christ. They don't understand He's the Messiah. And so Jesus here is taking an indirect approach with His enemies. He made this 
sound like another theological question here, when in reality what he's doing is he's asking probably the most important question these guys had ever heard in their life. Jesus asked them, whose son is the Messiah? Here they are. They're looking at God's son. They're looking at the Messiah, talking to him, and Jesus asked him, whose son is the Messiah? That's interesting because as trained experts in the law, they knew the answer. They should have known what Psalm 110 verse 1 says. And once they had given this answer, Jesus then asked them another question. By the way, notice their answer. Whose son is the Messiah? They said he is the son of David. Good answer. That's true. But he's more than that. And so Jesus asked him a second question. And this time, he, and this time here, he's actually quoting from Psalm 110. And he says that Jehovah, the Lord, said to Adonai, another Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. Well, that's an interesting response. (laughs) Of course, every Orthodox Jewish scholar interpreted that passage there to refer to Messiah. They knew that. And so only the Messiah could be the one to sit at the right hand of Jehovah God. Only the Messiah had that right. And so this shows us here Jesus believes a couple of things. Number one, he believes in the inspiration of Scripture. Because he's quoting from Psalm 110. He believed in the Psalms. He knew that they're talking about him. He understood the accuracy of the Old Testament Scriptures. Because he says that David spoke these words. Notice verse 43. David spoke these words in the Spirit. Capital S, Spirit. The Holy Spirit. So David was under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit when he said those words about Christ. And then notice Jesus asked another interesting question. He says, if Messiah is David's son, then how could Messiah also be David's Lord? That's kind of a weird question, isn't it? What? <laughs> All right, so Messiah is David's son. Normally sons come after the father, Right? Well, then how could this son, who's supposed to be under the father, actually be a king's lord? Wow, that's weird, isn't it? Well, there's only one answer to that question. And the answer is, as God, Messiah is David's lord, because Jesus is God. But as a man, remember, Jesus also called himself son of David. That shows his humanity. He has two natures. Therefore, Psalm 110, verse 1, teaches us those two natures. It teaches the deity of Christ as well as the humanity of Christ. That's pretty cool, all in one verse. So that's how Jesus is both David's son and David's Lord. Because he's the Messiah, he is deity as well as man. And he's both of those in one person. Notice the result. What happens as a result of this conversation? Well, had they listened to what Jesus said, they would have learned that there's only one Messiah and that Jesus is that Messiah, that Jesus is the King. They would have understood that Jesus is both human as well as divine. But they didn't understand that, did they? They would understand that Jesus had to suffer and die as the sacrifice for sins. And that Jesus would then have to rise from the dead. And that he would rise in triumph over death and sin and Satan. They would understand that one day he would return. Jesus is coming again and he's going to defeat his enemies. And he will be that conquering king one day. However, they didn't understand that. These religious leaders, they had their own ideas about what God and the Messiah was supposed to be like. They didn't want to change. They liked their position in life. And if they had accepted his teaching, then they'd also have to accept Jesus as the Messiah, which they didn't want to do. They're unwilling to do that. So the result of this dialogue, this conversation, was silence. Did you notice how the passage ends? Verse 46, No one was able to answer him a word, nor from that day did anyone dare to ask him any more questions. Discussion is done. So they're silent. They they dared not ask Jesus any more questions. And it's not because 
they had believed in Jesus and the truth. That's not why. They're actually afraid to face the truth. When you don't like hearing the truth, what do you do? Sometimes we just turn it off, right? It's interesting what Luke says in chapter 20. He said, they did not have courage to question Jesus any longer about anything. You hear what Luke says? They didn't have the courage. Didn't have the courage. They didn't have the courage to face the truth, and they didn't want to act on the truth. And so, my friend, listen closely. Making a decision about Jesus Christ is a matter of life and death. It's a matter of life and death. These guys were looking at truth. They were looking at the life. And they chose death. They rejected the truth and the life. And it's an eternal destiny that they chose. And so the evidence was there for everyone to examine. Jesus was gracious in in, in being there for them and teaching them the truth. Everybody had this opportunity to believe in Jesus. And we can examine it defensively, like they were doing, these religious leaders. And if we do, you know what happens? We miss the truth. Or we can examine it honestly. We can examine the truth humbly and believe it for what it says. In the process, you know what happens? We get to discover the truth. We get to believe and we're saved. So the religious leaders, sadly, were so blinded by their own pride, by their tradition, by their place in life, and and, and what they loved, they were worshiping themselves. They could not and would not see the truth. They refused to receive Jesus. And in the process, they died in their sins. They would have gone to hell unless unless some of them repented. As far as we know, uh, none of them did. So again, let me remind you, making a decision about Jesus Christ is a matter of life and death. It is not a light decision to make. It is a very serious one. So I I ask you, I beg you, I plead with you, don't make the same mistake they made. Let's pray.